as we go forth this morning that you would uh, empower me, that you would speak through me, that you would not let one word escape my lips this morning that you have not ordained to be said. None of my opinions or things that I want to say, uh, but simply what your word says, that it may be the, the true gospel this morning. And I, I just thank you again for this time. I pray for Pastor Dallas and his family and his church family as they uh, struggle and suffer through this time of crisis, but may they continually look to you for their hope, for their peace, for their guidance, and their wisdom. We love you, and it's in your name we pray. Amen. Go ahead and be seated. Alright, so if you've been in church much at all, or uh, just been around church, you have probably heard at least vaguely the temptation of Jesus. You have at least heard of this text before. And then we, if we read further into Scripture, Hebrews chapter 4.15 tells us that Jesus was tempted in all the ways that we were, and yet He was sinless. So we know that Jesus was tempted all of the same ways that we are. Now that may not be the exact same ways. He wasn't tempted to look things up on the internet that he shouldn't because the internet wasn't around. He wasn't tempted to eat too much fast food because the fast food wasn't around. Or all of those things. But he was tempted in the same way as we are. The same way whether it be sexual sin or gluttony or any of these things. He was tempted in the same ways. This happens to be simply one rendering of those temptations. Okay, we see here the way the devil is tempting him, and yet he still remained perfect through this temptation and through all of his temptations. There are a lot of times in Scripture that it is not stated that Jesus was tempted to do certain things. But we can assume, not that we should assume what the Bible was supposed to say, that's not what I mean, but we can assume that he was tempted at other times because of the reading of Scripture. We see him heal ten men with leprosy, right? Nine of them go on their merry way. One of them comes back to say thank you. If he is anything like me whatsoever, he would have been tempted to give those nine the leprosy back and move on with just the one that said thank you, right? But it doesn't say that he was tempted in that way. And it definitely states that he was not, did not sin in that way. He was spit on. He was mocked. He was beaten. He was hung on a cross, paraded naked through town to die outside of the city. And Jesus was fully man. We must remember this as we move forward this morning. He was fully man, fully human. It had to have been tempting to use the power that was at His disposal to remove Himself from the cross, to remove Himself from this pain and this suffering, and to put these people that are mocking Him in their place. But you see, there is a large difference between temptation and actual sin. And Jesus was willing to suffer through all of that to fight back all of these temptations, the ones we see here today and all of the ones throughout His life. He was willing to fight those back because He knew that God's plan would be fulfilled in its time. And He knew that the whole entire plan would be derailed if He were to sin but one single time. Even in the smallest possible way. Whatever you guys think the smallest sin that exists is, If Jesus had committed that sin, the entire plan would have been derailed. We must have a perfect sacrifice. We must have a sinless, not a mostly sinless, but a sinless Savior or it does not work. This is the only way. But here in Matthew, we see His temptation in the form of the devil coming directly to Him and tempting Jesus Himself. We see this as a face-to-face, hand-to-hand kind of combative battle that they're having. A battle of wits, if you will. A battle of wills, if you will. And what has just happened in Scripture? If you read 
the previous chapter, what has just happened? Jesus has just been baptized. Welcome to the faith. You're baptized. Here we are in the desert with the devil tempting you, right? And it was at that moment to fulfill all righteousness that Jesus was baptized that the heavens opened up and God spoke down directly to Jesus and said, This is my Son in whom I am well pleased. Jesus had affirmation of who He was as a human as Jesus, the, the human being, he was reaffirmed that, yes, I am. I am the Son of God. He spoke to me directly and told me, not only am I his Son, but he is well pleased with me. And then the next word in Scripture after, with whom I am well pleased, chapter 4. You've got to remember those weren't there back then. This was just one continuous story. But the next word is, then. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted. Now, we have no way of knowing if that literally was immediate. We don't know if maybe some time had passed in between chapter 3 and chapter 4, in between his baptism and temptation. But we do know that nothing happened that was important enough for the writer to write down, right? Because we don't have it here. And we know that the Bible is infallible in and of itself. So we know that nothing happened important enough for Matthew to write it down. So it seems to be pretty immediate. Baptized, up out of the water, this is my son whom I am well pleased Now you go be tempted by the devil. But why now? Why this specific instance in Jesus' ministry? Is he being tempted in these ways? And I think the answer to that is twofold. One, because of the aforementioned humanity of Jesus. He has just been told who he is. And he is getting ready to embark upon the hardest, most difficult ministry that anyone has ever done or heard of. Don't get me wrong, ministry is difficult. Sometimes you get a call at 11 o'clock at night and ask to preach the next day. It can be difficult, okay? It can be emotionally hard. It can be mentally hard. But no, no one, no pastor that has ever spoken has had a ministry as hard to preach the message that I have come to save the very ones that are murdering me. No one has ever come to preach the message of I am the one that is going to save you from your sins as they kill him. But he as a human needs to be reminded as he embarks upon this ministry of who he is and who is his father. And I believe God in his sovereignty timed this perfectly to build the foundation for Jesus' ministry for the rest of the time that Jesus would be here on earth ministering to people. So he could look back and he could say, I am God's son. He has told me specifically who I am. My identity is safe and secure and I rest in that. I rest in who He has told me He is and He is pleased with me on the day of my baptism as He is in this day in the desert when I am resisting the devil and He has that to fall back on and He has that identity to rest in for the rest of His earthly days. Secondly, I think that the timing of this is perfect because of the way we are tempted as human beings as well. When, when is the devil going to most actively attack any of you? Any Christian or anyone who is even maybe swinging towards Christianity. When is the devil going to attack your faith? It is when you are progressing, when you are growing, when you are being fruitful, when you are moving away from the things the devil wants you to do and towards the things that God wants you to do. Whether that be physically or spiritually or mentally. Any progress you make away from the devil and towards God, the devil is going to try to thwart that. He does not want that to happen. Now, a few of you may know this already, but I actually work for Hope House. You guys have been very helpful in a lot of ways in uh, helping us 
do what we do down at Hope House, whether that be monetarily, giving of your time. Uh, I've met many of you actually at Hope House volunteering, um, and we appreciate that very much. But I work um, with the new program living facility. So Monday through Friday, that's where I'm at. I'm at a program living facility that is 12 months, 24 hours a day, seven days a week for men who have struggled or are struggling with drug addiction and alcohol addiction. And we go through many different things with them throughout the day. They have a Bible study literally every day. They are shared the, they get the gospel shared with them literally every single day. There's curriculum, there's work experience. And we are about 45 days into this endeavor and we are exhausted. Um, I go home every day mentally and emotionally drained because um, these men, they want answers. They want truth. That's what they were seeking with their addiction is answers and fulfillment. And now they are asking, well, how can I have that fulfillment in Jesus? It's great questions, but it is emotionally and mentally exhausting. Some of the stories I'm not allowed to tell in mixed company because they still have not exactly learned what cooth is, if you guys know what that is or what I should and shouldn't say in front of people. It's kind of like when your kids do something and you had to give them the look like, we, we don't do that around here. That's how I feel every day with them. Like, we, we don't say that to strangers. But besides that, there's definitely been some tension in the house, some between staff and residents, some between re- most of it between resident and resident. Okay, But in the midst of all of that chaos, in the midst of all of that mess, And all of that emotion, some of them are feeling emotions they've numbed for years with drugs and alcohol. They're feeling these things for the first time. They are asking about the wreckage that their lives have been, or that they have brought about in their lives. They are are realizing for the first time, this is my fault. They are realizing, man, this affected more people than just me. And yet, in the midst of all of that, God is most certainly and assuredly on the move. People are asking questions they've never asked before. They are reading the Bible that they've literally never opened one single time before. It's hard for us as church people to imagine that. And some of these men have literally not read one word of Scripture in their entire lives. And they have questions, as they should. They have many, many questions. They are hearing the Gospel every day. And two separate times, two weeks ago, this is two separate individuals, they came to me and they said, Justin... What does it mean to be a Christian? If you guys are experiencing easier evangelism than that, I want to hang out with you guys. Because that does not happen in real life. I go lots of places throughout the week that aren't work, and I'm never asked that question. Hey, dude, that I don't know, um, how do you become a Christian? That just never happens. Like, you have to instigate it, and we should be instigating it. But in this case, they just came, and, came outright and asked, what, well, <laughs> let me tell you what it means to be a Christian. They are are experiencing things that they have never experienced before. And God is moving. And there's still tension. There's still arguments every single day between residents. And I'm like, guys, didn't I just answer this question about being a Christian and viewing things differently and, you know, showing grace because you've been shown grace and forgiving because you've been forgiven and all of these things? And yet there's still arguments because they are men who are still dealing with all of the things that I just mentioned. And they don't know how, really. They don't know how to deal with those things. And it comes out in lots of different ways. And I had to sit down with two of them the other day and look at them and say, look, this is Satan. He is trying to attack you now. because He didn't have to attack you before. You were his. 
You were already enmeshed in all of the things He wanted you to do, but now He sees God is moving. He sees God is drawing you. I have no idea if they're actually Christians yet. That's not my call to make. But I do know they're growing. I do know they're moving. I do know they're asking questions they've never asked before. And God is drawing them. And they are thinking clearly. They are thinking soberly. They are thinking about things much differently than they ever have. And the the devil is going to try to snake his way into that house any way that he can. And I told them, he can't use drugs anymore. We've cut off access to that. He can't use alcohol anymore. We've cut off access to that. He can't even use women and lust anymore because you don't see women. They're not allowed in the house. This is a men's, men's house. Now, they do go certain places. They see women. But they're, they're not, tempt, hopefully not tempted by those things at church and places like that. So he can't use that. And what is the devil doing? Oh, that didn't work? Let me try something else. Oh, that's not going to work? Let me try something else. Let me try something else. Access to all of those things have been removed, so what can he use? Strife between residents. He can cause you to get mad at something that you shouldn't even be mad at. You shouldn't even care. And yet he's going to snake his way in because they are moving. And this is what Satan does. He tries to distract, right? He tries to move you away from what God is doing in your life. When God is moving, He tries a new way of temptation. And this is what Jesus had to go through just like we have to go through it. He is identifying with our humanity. Whenever God is showing up clearly in our lives, that is when the devil is going to mount his strongest attack. He doesn't have to attack a sinking ship, guys. He can leave that thing alone. It'll sink itself. If it's taken on water, it'll take care of itself. But when the boat is moving through the water, streamlined, moving through the water, that's when he's going to send the icebergs. That's when he's going to send the missiles or whatever he's going to send to try to sink your ship. It is during those times that he is going to attack. And Jesus here is going through what we go through. He is identifying with us. The king of the universe has stepped down into humanity to be one of us, to go through life like one of us, to experience the things that we experience and to do it perfectly so that He can set up His eternal kingdom and offer us a way into that kingdom. You see here, this is the only way in. Is If Jesus is perfect, if He lives and is our substitute, He has to be a human because we are humans and He has to be an exact substitute of who we are. But He also has to be God. He has to be valuable enough to pay that debt. And here we see that He is the King of the universe and He is a human. And we see here that Satan tempts Jesus in three very specific ways. Now, at first glance, these may seem totally unrelated. Uh, I am about to contend with you that they are all exactly the same. Um, We were going to look at these briefly, separately. And first, the first one we see is in verse 2. It says that Jesus had fasted for 40 days. And then we see some of the most obvious scripture that has ever been written, right? Jesus didn't eat for 40 days. By the way, he was hungry. Oh, thanks for the late-breaking news there. I I thought he wouldn't be hungry. So he fasted for 40 days and he was hungry. But the thing is, is we flippantly read over that, like, of course he was hungry. But again, he is identifying with us. He is a human who doesn't eat for 40 days and he gets hungry. He wasn't tempted as a God who is impervious to hunger and thirst. He is tempted as a man who wanted something to eat. He is not tempted as a God who is impervious to being tempted by the things of this world, but as a man filled with the Holy Spirit who had to legitimately withstand the wiles of the devil. So Satan tries to exploit that. He sees 
Jesus in his weaknesses, and he tries to exploit him in what he deems a weakness, just like he will to us. And he says, if you are the Son of God, he's not questioning whether he is the Son of God. He is affirming, oh, well, if you're the Son of God, then you can do this. And he was right. Jesus was the Son of God, and he could have turned the stones into bread. It's not denying Jesus' power to do so. He is saying, you have the power, you should use it. Now, my question to you is, would it have been wrong for Jesus to turn stones into bread? Would it have been wrong for Him to eat when He is done fasting? He's hungry, right? It's not, this doesn't say Jesus was being a glutton and eating all the bread. He was hungry. I want to tell you guys, because after this is lunchtime, if you're hungry, it's not a sin to eat. Just letting you guys know. Okay? It is not a sin to eat when you are hungry. It is not a sin to eat if you have fasted and you come out of that fast hungry. So what's the big deal? Why didn't Jesus just do this? The big deal is not what the devil was trying to get him to do, but how he was getting, trying to get him to do it. You see, the devil was trying to replace what only God can do in Jesus' life. He is trying to take the place of Father here. He is trying to take the place. What has God just said to Jesus? You are my son. What is another way of saying that? I am your father. Right? So Jesus has just said, I am your father. And the devil is trying to come in and take that role from God and to be the father. Why? Because the father provides. It's what a father does. A father is meant to be provision for his family. It's not that Jesus cannot have bread in this moment, but it is that He cannot have it on the devil's terms. That is why Jesus tells Satan using Scripture, Deuteronomy 8.3, if you want to write that down, it says that we do not live off bread alone, but every word that comes from the mouth of God. What is He telling Satan here? He's saying, God is my Father. God is my provider. God is my provision. I don't need you. I don't need anything from you. God has told me that He is enough He is my Father. He will provide. And I don't need you for anything, Satan. Secondly, again, what does the devil do? Oh, that didn't work? Hang on, i got something else. Secondly, the devil takes Jesus to the pinnacle of the temple. And he says to Jesus, throw yourself off the temple and the angels will bear you up. They will save you from falling or getting hurt. He even uses Old Testament Scripture to prove his point. So we know it's true. We know what Satan is saying in the words that he is saying it is true, it's Psalm 91, 11, and 12. It's a prophecy about the coming Messiah that this will happen, that he will protect him until the time comes where he is needed to die. This is all true the Satan, that Satan is saying. And if Jesus had flung himself down from the temple, he would have been saved. But let's look at why this would have even been tempting. This is not just tempting because you can... It would be cool to jump off a tall building and angels to come save you. That would be cool. And to me, that is tempting. Wish I could do that. But that's not why it's tempting to Jesus. At this point, Jesus is well aware of what is going to happen. Okay? He knows he is going to have to die. He is well aware. He is God. He knows all, all things, right? But he's also human, so he would be tempted to change the plan, right? He knows all of the ridicule, the shame, the pain, the beatings, and all the things he's going to have to go through. And In his humanity, I'm sure he does not want to do those things. But he's on the top of the temple here. There will be thousands of people milling around underneath him. If not tens of thousands of people. This is the most popular place in the world at this point. And people were 
there. They would have seen him jump off the temple. They would have seen angels come out of nowhere and save his life and place him softly on the ground. And what would that, surely that would have ended at least some debate of Messiah, no Messiah, right? That would have at least convinced some of the people, oh, I didn't think he was, but then I saw this really cool trick he did last week, okay? He jumped off the temple and angels came. So I'm pretty sure he is who he says he is. So many, many more people would have been saved. Jesus knows that even though he's going to go through all of this beating, all of this shame, all of these things, that people will still won't believe. To this day, there are still people that know the truth intellectually and do not have faith, do not believe. And Jesus could put some of that to rest. He could at least save some of them, right, by showing them who he is. And once again, it is not the action but the motive. It wouldn't have been bad for Jesus to reveal Himself to more people to make them believe. It is the motive that Satan, again, is trying to usurp the throne of God. He is still trying to place Himself in the throne where only the Father can sit. Whose job is it to protect? It is the Father's job to protect. Men of Burton, I want to give you a tip. If tonight, I don't want this to happen, but you're laying in bed, and you hear a noise that you should not hear in your house, do not nudge your wife and go, check that out. Go see, go see what that is. I'm scared. Don't do that. Okay? It's your job as father to protect. And God, God has promised him that he will protect him. He doesn't have to put that to the test. God said it. I believe it. That's what Jesus is saying. Okay? He doesn't have to test whether God will protect him to prove his messiahship on his own terms. And again, using Scripture, he puts God back in his proper place and says, God's promises are meant for us to trust, not to test. There's a huge difference there. God will protect me, yes, but he will do it on his terms and when he says, because he is the Father and he protects. I don't need you, Satan, to protect me in this moment. Thirdly, Satan takes Jesus to the top of a mountain. He shows him the entire world. Now, Jesus may have created all of this, or not may have, he did. He created all of this. But in his humanity, once again, this is probably the first time he's seeing most of it. He's probably only been a few miles from his house at this point in his life. And it even says that Satan showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. So this is clearly awe-inspiring for Jesus, right? This is clearly Jesus is probably taken aback. Man, I, I did a darn good job here creating all this stuff. This looks awesome. So he's seeing this for maybe the first time, and then Satan drops it on him, right? He says, if you will fall down and worship me for just a second, all of this will be yours. Everything you see here, I'll give it to you. Now, a couple things we need to establish here. One, I do not believe that we are talking ownership here. Okay, there's a slight difference. The world is God's. It always has been God's. It always will be God's. He does what He pleases at every moment, and that includes this moment where Jesus is being tempted. This was not outside of His control. But Satan does have dominion over the earth because God has granted him that dominion. We see in Ephesians 2, just so you know I'm not making this up. Ephesians 2, 1 and 2, says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which, in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. This is Satan. He is the prince of the power of the air. God has granted him, with boundaries, some power over the earth. 2 Corinthians 4.4 4 says, In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image 
of God. Again, God of this world. He has clearly been given some power, some dominion over the earth. Satan has been given boundaries, yes, but dominion over what we see and what we perceive on this planet. This does not mean he had complete control, but God had given in his infinite wisdom these parameters. Okay, But Satan is saying, even that, even what God has granted me control over, I'll give it all back. You worship me for one second, one time, it's all yours. I will stop influencing people to do things they shouldn't do. I will stop lying to people and making them do horrible things. Look at the news. All of that, our news would be entirely different had this happened. Bad things would have stopped happening. Satan wouldn't have needed to tempt us anymore. But the worst thing would have happened because we would no longer have a way out of our sin. We would no longer have a way out of hell. We would no longer have salvation because we would not have a sinless Savior. And Jesus does not respond to Satan's offer and say, it's not yours to give, Satan. This is mine anyway. He doesn't say that. He also doesn't say, Satan, you wouldn't live up to your end of the bargain anyway. I know you're a liar. You're probably just lying right now. You wouldn't even give it to me. Clearly, I feel like Jesus believes it. That's why he answers him the way that he does. But yet again, what is the devil trying to do? He's trying to be the father. Again, whose job is inheritance? It is the father's, especially in biblical times. It is the father's job to leave the inheritance to the son. It is not Satan's job to give Jesus the dominion over the world. God's going to do that in His timing when He sees fit by His plan. Provision, protection, inheritance are all jobs of the Father. And God is the ultimate Father who will fulfill all of those roles perfectly. So Jesus need not look anywhere else for that. We need not look anywhere else for that. And Jesus once again quotes Deuteronomy and lets Satan know that he is lost. And I'm only going to worship God. He is the only one worthy of my worship. And Satan was not just defeated on that day, but he was utterly vanquished. This was his only hope. If he could just get Jesus to sin one single time, we would all be hopeless. And Satan knows that. The whole plan would fall apart, and Satan knows that. He throws his best punches at Jesus, and nothing works. So in verse 11, we see him like a little puppy dog with his tail between his legs, and he just leaves. Jesus says, be gone, Satan. And the devil left him, and behold, angels were coming, or came and were ministering to him. A couple things to point out about, about Satan and the way he tempted Jesus that I think parallel to our own lives. If you guys like application, here we are. I believe that Satan is still trying to tempt us all in this same way. He's still trying to sit on the throne that only God can sit on in our lives. But even more than that, he wants us to put anything in that throne. He doesn't even care if he sits in it. As long as we will put something in that throne that isn't God. Sometimes we have to realize that Satan is not always the little guy on your shoulder with the pitchfork and the red cape and the weird goatee. Anybody notice that in cartoons? He's always got that weird... Anyway, Satan is not always that guy. He's sometimes offering you a job or a promotion and telling you that this is God's plan. He sometimes is the guy that gives you a ton of money and says, this is providing for your kids. I'm not saying money is bad. I'm not saying taking promotions is bad. You have to look at those things in your own lives and see, is this Satan leading me through this door? Is it because I'm going to put this on top of God or on the throne of God? Or is this God blessing me in these ways so that I can make Him or show His glory more? 
Okay? Sometimes Satan is our biggest cheerleader. You want kids with good behavior? You got it. You want a great marriage? You got it. As long as you want that more than Jesus, I'll give you whatever you want. John 8.44 tells us that Satan is the father of lies and there is no truth in him. This does not mean that he cannot say true things with untrue motives to get you off track. You see, he did that with Jesus, right? He used Scripture, which is true, to get Jesus or to try to get Jesus off track. It wasn't that he was flat outlying. He was saying it in a way out of context to make it untrue, trying to make it seem like it was true. And he does this with us as well. His motives are untrue, even when he is our biggest cheerleader. He wants us to have exactly what we want if we want that more than Jesus. You want a great marriage? I'll give it to you. Here's another one. You want to be the greatest pastor that has ever existed? Lead millions of people to Christ? I'll give it to you as long as you want that status, as long as you want that prestige and that power more than you want Jesus. I'll deal with the people you do get saved later. I'll take care of them later. I'll take care of you right now. I'll give you everything you want. Because you want that more than you want God. Again, Satan is not always trying to sit on the throne. He just wants you to put anything on that throne that isn't God. You see, just as God can use sinful men to fulfill His will and fulfill His roles, Romans 8.28 tells us, for all things work together for the good of those who love Him and for God's glory, right? I just butchered that quotation, but it says that in jest, in the gist of it. Satan is trying to do the exact opposite. He wants to take what God has meant for good and His glory and turn it away from God and to turn it away from His glory. He takes good things, good kids, that's a great thing. A good marriage, that is a great thing. Providing for your children, that is a great thing. But it is not God. And Satan wants to take good things and make them God things. And that is never, ever good. But he won't do this by turning the whole world upside down, right? We would notice that. If I were to go, it's hot in here, so maybe I'm using a bad example, but... If I were to go take the thermostat and turn it up one degree, would anybody in here notice? Probably not. If I turned it up ten degrees, would anybody notice? Everyone would notice, right? That's what Satan's trying to do. Another, another analogy. Did you know that if you were traveling around the world in a plane and you were take off from Washington, D.C., and your goal is to go all the way around the globe and land back in Washington, D.C., that if you're off by one single solitary degree on that compass that you will land in Boston, which is 435 miles away. 435 miles away off of one single tick on that compass. And that's what the devil's trying to do. He's trying to get you to go one single degree off track from what God wants you to do. The devil doesn't want to crash your plane. We'd all notice that. But he'd love for you to land in a different city or a different town or where you're not supposed to be or where God doesn't want you to be. This is how he operates He wants you to alter your trajectory just enough and to take your good intentions and your good efforts and what you want for good and to use them for His power and His glory because we haven't noticed. And we must never, ever, ever forget that when He tries to do this, it is the very same power that we have in us right now today that Jesus had then. That Jesus had when He was resisting the devil face to face. It is the same Spirit that indwelled Jesus that indwells us even today. If you, if you are a believer, if you are a believer, that same Holy Spirit is leading you today as it was Jesus then. 
But here is the real beauty of the story. We had to say all of that to get here. And I promise I'm almost done. This is the beauty about Jesus' temptation. And this is what I really want you to hear today. If Pastor Dallas comes back, hey, what did he preach on? This. This story is not about us. This story is not about you. This story is not about me. And I know you guys are like, yeah, it's about Jesus. We understand that. But it, it's, it's also not a blueprint about how to resist the wiles of Satan. It's not a how-to guide of how to resist Satan in our lives. Is that included here because we've just talked about it for however long? Yes. Indirectly, that is something that is being said here. But this is not specifically a how-to guide of how to resist temptation by using Scripture. Should we know all of those things? Absolutely. But this story, along with all of Scripture, is about Jesus. It is not about Him teaching us how to resist temptation. It is a story about how He resisted temptation for us. He fulfilled perfection. He fulfilled the law of God. He was obedient in our place. He defeated the devil because we are unable to do so. He resisted sin because we are powerless to do so. He lives sinless because we all sin and fall short of the glory of God. And this is a direct depiction of how Jesus lived our life in our place as a human, as a direct substitute for us. And by placing our faith in Him, He now gives us His obedience, His righteousness, His perfection. It's not about us trying harder. It's not about us getting closer to God on our own. I think it is always dangerous to read biblical stories and insert yourself into the text. Do I think you should glean application from the text? 100% yes. So if anybody asks you that, I think that is one of the reasons that Scripture is given to us. is so that we can apply it to our own lives. And even in this case, do I believe that? But the story of David and Goliath is not first and foremost about how you as David can defeat your sin, Goliath, because you are so good and so strong and if you just put your faith in Jesus. Jesus is David. He defeats Goliath for you. He defeats your sin for you. It is irresponsible for us to approach any story of the Bible with that mentality first and foremost. And especially when it's about Jesus. The Good Samaritan is not about how we should be Good Samaritans. Should we use that for application? Absolutely. But we're the dead guy in the ditch that needs the Good Samaritan who is Jesus to come and save us. The sinful woman talking to Jesus at the well. We are not Jesus in that story taking the Gospel to a lost and dying world. Should we do that? Absolutely. But we're the lost woman talking to Jesus. who He brings us the living water, right? The prostitute Jesus saves. Not going to go into great detail of who you are in that story because I don't want that to be though. What what Pastor Justin preach on? Well, he told us we were all prostitutes. That's not what I want you guys to get from this. okay? But we are the ones in need of a Savior. We are not the Savior. We are the ones in need of a sinless one who is sent to be our Messiah. We are not meant to do that on our own or ourselves. The point is, we have, we have got to get that all of Scripture is about one story. And that story is that because we are all sinners with absolutely no way of reconciling ourselves back to God, that we needed a stand-in. We needed a Savior. We needed someone who could stand up to the devil because we cannot. I don't want you guys watching a movie about my life when I'm not here. I don't even want you watching a movie about what I'm probably thinking as I'm standing here. 
Because I'm a sinner through and through, and I need a Savior. This story is not just, I'm not saying it's not at all, it is not just to encourage us. The story is about how a king humbled himself enough to be one of us in every possible way except perfect. It is a story of a king who inaugurated his kingdom only to seemingly give it up at the cross. Satan thought he had won. We got him. We killed him. And yet what happened three days later? That we may be ushered into an eternal kingdom forever reconciled to God, forever reconciled to our Savior Jesus. The story is to cause us to marvel at this King. To marvel at His humility. To marvel at His obedience. To marvel at His mercy. To marvel at His grace. And to marvel that even though He had the power to save Himself from all of that pain, He used that power instead to fulfill the work that He knew He was called to do and to make a way for those who couldn't make a way for themselves. That is you. That is me. To marvel that He freely gives us this grace through faith in Jesus. This is a specific rendering of his temptation. Not so we can look at how he did it and learn. Yes, we need to be reminded that the same power that Jesus used in the Holy Spirit is a power that we have access to right now. Please take that away from here today. If, the, if, if you're taking anything, take that as well. Yes, we need to know Scripture. He, he used Scripture to fight the devil, right? We must know the Word. Absolutely. It is... A reminder that we should strive to be more holy. We should strive for perfection even though we're not going to hit it. But we should try. That is absolutely in this text. But more importantly than all of that is a reminder that it is already finished. Jesus has already completed this work. He has already been perfect. He has already been sinless. And by faith in Him, we can have that perfection. We can have that sinlessness. We can have that righteousness. When we mess up, we look to Jesus because He didn't mess up. When we struggle with the same sin over and over again, we look to Jesus because He didn't. When it seems too hard and we want to give up, we look to Jesus because He didn't give up. And we don't have it harder than Him, I can guarantee you that. It is a text to remind us that we something we must remember. That no matter how good you get at resisting sin in this life, it is meaningless and we have no hope whatsoever Unless Jesus resisted all sin first. That is the distinction that must be made. I guarantee you there are people here that are better people than I am. But nobody's here better than Jesus. There's nobody that is so good at resisting sin that they've resisted all sin. Except for Jesus. So yes, fight the good fight. Finish the race. I encourage you all to do that. But remember that it is Jesus' fight that saves it is Jesus' race that wins. It is Jesus' defeat of Satan that lasts. And it is Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection that offers eternal life with Him. This temptation narrative is not a declaration of war, but a decree of victory. This King wins this war. And praise be to Jesus that He did and didn't leave it up to us to do it on our own. He wins it so that we may enjoy the spoils of war with Him in eternity. May we be reminded of that today, church. May we go from this place and may we marvel at this Savior, this sinless One, this Jesus. Not at our own abilities, not at our own willpower to hold tight and withstand the temptation of the devil. The church is meant for, for that, to encourage one another to do that. 
But Jesus is the one who saves. And we must go from this place marveling at the spoils of war that we get to um, enjoy for eternity and be willing to offer that to a lost and dying world outside of these walls. We must tell them that Jesus offers this to them just as He offered it to us. We must share the Gospel with them. And the Gospel is, I may not be perfect, but I know the One who is. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we just thank You once again for this opportunity to come to read Your Word.